Tonight, God willing, what we're going to do is look at the section in Daniel chapter 11 that really begins in verse 36. So we, uh, we just have a couple of verses there. Um, and this is, it's bringing us from that time period up to verse 40, where we have the time of the end that is described for us. So if we take a look at Daniel chapter 11, and at verse 36, we read about a king that's going to do according to his will. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be, overcome, or be accomplished, for that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God who his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. So when we look at this little section, it plugs into Daniel 11. You cannot divorce it from Daniel chapter 11. And the, the section that we looked at prior to this is really dealing with the Roman Empire um, that has been uh, developing, coming from the Greeks. And remember the Greeks and the Romans, um, well, the king of the north, king of the south, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And eventually in the north, the Roman Empire would arrive. And now we have this king that's going to do according to his will. So we'd like to sort of conduct this in a way um, similar to a bit of a trial. Um, so we're going to put on trial the Catholic Church. And basically the accusation is that the Catholic Church is the king who does according to his will, as is recorded for us in Daniel chapter 11. And so what we'd like to do is more or less invite you to participate as the jury, to hear the evidence, and to more or less decide for yourself. Um, and, and the reason I feel this is somewhat critical is that we, recently we've had a few brethren who have sort of touted the idea that this king who does according to his will is um, actually Putin. Um, kind of mixing up the last part of the chapter with this part of the chapter, um, and I think it's worthwhile going through the identifiers that are given there so that we don't just muddle it all together. So the court of judgment basically is what we're going to do. Um, I used to be in another life a court sketcher. So uh, similar to good old brother Robert, so I got to sit through a fair amount of trials. And I found it quite helpful, actually, just to sort of follow this through in a similar kind of way as we look at, you know, sort of bringing forth witnesses and seeing how um, or whether or not the, the charges hold up. So what we'd really like to do as we consider these things together is to take a look at this from a biblical point of view, though. Um, and we have a duty as believers, as we're told in the first of John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So the duty of the believer is to try the spirits and to figure out these ideas from the word of God. So whatever the teaching is, we want to try and figure it out from the word of God. Um, and of course, that is our litmus test, as we have in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15. 
all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So it's the word of God that is a meter stick when it comes to figuring this stuff out, whether it's for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, or for instruction in righteousness. And of course, we have Isaiah 8 verse 20, where we're instructed that the authority on this is the word of God. It's to the law and to the testimony that we have to go. If it's not according to this, that the word is spoken, uh, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. And so that's really our policy in anything like this, is that we want to follow what the disciples did. Uh, back in Acts chapter 17, the, the Jews actually that were in Berea, that were more noble than those that were in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So that's really um, the key in any of this is to put the scriptures um, there as a litmus test, as a test against the things that are laid out for us. So what we're going to do this evening, God willing, is to really go through the evidence that is laid out for us um, and of course, this is what happens in any court case, that evidence is brought forward and um, is presented before the court. One of the things we're going to bring forward is the catechism of the Catholic Church. We're going to actually bring the church itself forward um, as well. And we are going to, of course, utilize what the Bible has to say in this regard. So we want to kind of go through this fairly methodically and consider the evidence as it is laid out for us. So we're going to go back to Daniel 11, and if you've got Daniel 11 open, it probably would be helpful. We won't be able to deal with every single aspect of this quite like a verse by verse, but we're going to pick out some of the major identifying points um, in the time that we have together. So in Daniel 11 and verse 36, we read about this king who is going to do according to his will, and he's going to exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. So that is one of the key um, hallmarks of this system, is that it's going to exalt and magnify itself. That's really the first crime, I guess you could say, that um, we could call this, this system on. Now, as far as, you know, how do we prove that? Um, it's not just a matter of opinion or what you think or what I think or what Brother X thinks or Brother Y thinks or whoever it might be. Um, we need to establish this from some source of credibility. So we thought, well, you know, we'll actually call to the stand um, the accused themselves, the, the office of the Vatican and of the Pope's. Um, and the first uh, witness, really, that we want to bring into this whole thing is the, the Pope himself, um, uh, the current Pope, that is, which is Francis. And um, we're going to go to Rome and to a structure, basically, that is there, the palace of the Archbasilica of St. John the Lateran, um, very impressive basilica in Rome. And when you enter into this palace, there is an inscription that is there for us to read. Here is the inscription. And um, if we were to blow it up, you know, we can actually make out the, the third line there, which is Ecclesiarum Mater, which is the Mother Church. So this is just, we know what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the Mother Church. So as we enter inside, what is it that that system has to say? 
Well, the basilica is quite significant and, and you know, it's a pretty impressive uh, basilica. And if we go to the very front of the basilica, we come to what is called the nave. And you can see this kind of an alcove um, behind this altar with its little idols up above. And uh, if we go behind this altar, we actually find here the seat of the popes. This is the papal throne or the cathedra, which symbolizes the Holy See. So this is the place where the popes come to sit, which is on the seat of Peter. And this is where they speak ex cathedra. Now, ex cathedra basically has the idea of meaning literally to speak from the chair. So this is when the, the, the Pope comes and sits here. He speaks concerning doctrines and morals of the faith. So this is where Francis will sit if he's going to give a, uh, um, a papal encyclical is going to be dictated from here. And um, this is what the Vatican Council I has to say about this seat. When the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is from this chair, he possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not by the consent of the church irreformable. So then, should anyone, which God forbid, have the temerity to reject this definition of ours, let him be anathema. So that's the Vatican Council in 1909. <coughs> Excuse me. So this is the claim of the church itself, um, is that basically when it speaks from this chair, it is infallible. In other words, it cannot be wrong. It is completely and absolutely right in everything that it has to say. So it is, in that sense, exalted above all, because nobody can speak against it. Now, when we think of this, the, the next witness we'd like to call to the stand is the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he gives a Bible class, more or less, on Daniel chapter 11 and the verses that we are looking at, and he warns us and he says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed. So he calls this king the man of sin, the son of perdition. And notice the words here that is picked up from Daniel chapter 11, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God all that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So this is Paul's comment on Daniel 11 and, and verses that we're looking at, 36 to 39. And he says that it's actually going to be um, a falling away, an apostasy, which is what the word means there, a falling away from the faith. And then this man of sin is going to be revealed. So this is what he identifies, and we say, well, you know, what do we find when we examine the church itself? And so we'd like to bring a couple of witnesses forward. The first is a Charlie named John Tetzel. He was around from 1465 to 1519. And what he did was sell indulgences um, for the building of St. Peter's during the time of Martin Luther. 
and uh, just a little background on him. He actually um, had somebody come to him as he was out selling his indulgences and, and they basically asked him a question is that could, um, would it be possible for somebody to buy an indulgence for a sin they hadn't committed yet? And to which, um, you know, he thought, well, I mean, we could make a few bucks on this. So he uh, he quickly said yes. And so what happened was the individual bought a indulgence for a sin yet to be described or committed. Um, and it was signed with the papal seal. And uh, Tetzel went off with his money and the individual went off with his indulgence. And a day or so later, Tetzel was um, traveling from one town to the next when he was robbed by a highwayman. And uh, all of the money that he'd collected for these indulgences was stolen. Well, the authorities caught up with this highwayman and found him with the cash and basically were to execute him. But he said, oh, no, no, you, you, you can't in execute me because I actually have a forgiveness for this sin from the Pope himself. And there was, that's ridiculous. How can you have this? And he pulled out the indulgence that he would bought from Tetzel a couple of days earlier um, which was for a sin he hadn't committed yet, and this, he said, is that sin. And so that's one of the things that caused Martin Luther to be so incensed and turn around and say, this is ridiculous, um, and begin that process of leaving the Catholic Church himself. Well, this is what Tetzel, who's out selling indulgences to build St. Peter's, has to say about the Pope himself. He says, the Lord our God no longer reigns, he has resigned all power to the Pope. And that comes from the history of Protestantism. Um, and this is Tetzel's comment. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, he as God sits in the, the, the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, or as it puts it in Daniel 11, he exalts himself above every God and against the God of gods. Um, this is exactly what we find. Well, that's Tetzel. I mean, he's kind of down the ladder a little bit. So let's call a, a witness of a bit of a higher caliber. We're going to bring along now Pope Pius V. And he was just shortly after Tetzel, 1566 to 1572. Um, and this is what he has to say. The Pope and God are the same. So he has all power in heaven and earth. So he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He rules as though he is God himself. He does according to his will and he exalts himself and magnifies himself above every God and speaks marvelous things against the God of gods. And that's exactly what we find. But we're not going to just sort of put it on one or two witnesses. Um, you know, we're told in the Bible that the amount of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So we'll call forward Pope Pius IX, and he's a little bit closer to our time period, 14, or 1846 to 1878. So this is just shortly after Alpha Siswell was written. Um, and um, this was cited in uh, 1895, um, but this is what Pope Pius IX had to say. Um, he turned around and basically stated that the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of the flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. Now, that's interesting when you think about the fact that the papacy believes that Jesus Christ is God. So he 
as God, as Jesus Christ, um, is going to basically exalt himself above all. So if the Pope is speaking, as far as they're concerned, it is God himself that is speaking. We have another witness. Uh, this is Pope Leo XIII in 1894. So this is um, just a, a few years on. And uh, this is what he has to say about the papacy's role. He says, we, that is the Vatican, the Pope, hold upon this earth the place of Almighty God. So you can't really get a whole lot um, more close to fulfilling the words of Daniel chapter 11 than these. But it's not just in what they say, it's in the practice of the church itself. Here is the Pope, and uh, here are the priests that are being ordained. And what is happening in this little video you're seeing is they prostrate themselves before the Pope and pledge their filial allegiance to him, um, complete and absolute utter allegiance to the Pope, um, who they believe is God himself on the earth. And so he as God is treated like God. He is exalted above every God, and, and this is literally what they do. They, they bow down before him, and then they come before him, and they are given the, uh, the papal blessing, the, the laying on of hands as they are ordained into the ministry. So that's, that's the one little hallmark about this. But Daniel 11 goes on to say that he'll magnify himself against, above every god, but he's also going to speak marvelous things against the god of gods. And we want to call again to the stand here, the word of God itself, the Bible, because this is um, what we need to understand about uh, what the, the Catholic Church claims and what the Bible has to say. Now, the Bible's quite clear in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, where we read, you know, passage we usually memorize in Sunday school. Um, From a child you have known the holy scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And those last two phrases there, perfection or perfect, means to be fitted completely, to meet the demands um, of, of everybody. Um, and basically, if you look at this in, in uh, the next phrase there, thoroughly furnished, is the idea of being to be accomplished, to be perfectly furnished, fitted. The idea is actually like a ship. Um, that pretty much it's the idea of of undergirding the ship. It's it's all equipped. It's ready to go. Everything is completely fitted out for the voyage. So there's nothing lacking, and that's the idea that we have in the scriptures. Um, in fact, it tells us elsewhere in the scripture Moses. Uh, we can bring Moses to the stand now, and Moses tells us in Deuteronomy four verse twenty two. If anybody adds to or shall, shall take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life, out of the holy city, and from the things that are written in the book. That's actually not Deuteronomy 4. That is actually Revelation 22, and I think verse 19. Um, but, yes, it is. I've got these two backwards. It's all right. So Deuteronomy 12, verse 32. This is Moses. What things soever I command you, observe and do, there shall not add thereto nor diminish. 
The one above is Revelation chapter 22 verse 19. And uh, the next one I'm just going to pop up on the screen is actually the one from Deuteronomy. Um, so it says, you shall not add unto the word that I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandment of Yahweh your God, which I command you. So that's the section from Deuteronomy 4. So they weren't to add to it or diminish, to take away from it. Um, and, and as Revelation 22 stated, if they did, then God would take away their place from, um, from the, the book of life. So we called then to the stand um, Pope Paul II, John Paul II, who put together this Catechism of the Catholic Church. And um, this is what he had to say about this concept of the scriptures being good enough that we could be thoroughly furnished with them. He said, the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the word of God, whether it is written form or the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in the matters exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. It is. That's it. There is no authority. This means the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishop in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. So you actually cannot understand the scriptures for yourself and interpret them yourself. Um, they are not able to make you wise unto salvation. You will not be thoroughly furnished. You will not be completely fit without the Pope or the bishops of Rome putting their seal upon it. So that's the catechism and verse 28. So when we think about speaking great things against the God of gods, God says one thing, and then um, the Pope says something entirely different. Well, we go on to read here, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Now, this idea of the God of his fathers, we'll maybe come back and talk about that in a moment. Um, we might not quite get into that so much tonight, but the idea is that the system that would develop, the Roman system, would divorce itself from the paganism it had and would move on to other gods, which we'll see in a moment. Um, but it also says here that he will not desire, uh, regard the desire of women. Now, this is interesting because this is something that Timothy is told in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So we can see here the context. In the latter times some would depart from the faith. And remember that Paul had said there would come a falling away first when he gave his Bible class on Daniel chapter 11 in 2 Thessalonians 2. Well, what are the hallmarks of this system? Well, again, just like 2 Thessalonians 2, um, or sorry, just like Daniel chapter 11, this falling away that Paul talks about both here and in Thessalonians also talks about this forbidding to marry and, and actually added to that is commanded to abstain from meat. So what about this idea of forbidding to marry? Well, if we know anything about the Catholic Church, um, we know that one of the hallmarks of the system is celibacy. So this is that same catechism that John Paul put together, um, Article 1579, he says, all the ordained ministers of the Latin church are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
He goes on to say, celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which the church's minister is consecrated. Accepted with a joyous heart, celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. So to belong to this system, to be, to be part of the Vatican system, and more importantly, to be um, the man who sits at the top of this, one has to be celibate. Well, you don't need to sort of look too far to see the result of this, because what we find is that in Australia, uh, very recently, 4,444 children have been found to be abused by Catholic priests. And this is just in the last little while. Uh, this is also uh, in Australia, uh, a, uh, a march, uh, silence is collusion, speak out, hands off our kids, uh, clergy sexual abuse steals lives. So they're protesting against the the clergy, the priests and the bishops who basically have been involved in m molesting children largely due to this policy of celibacy. It comes up in Ireland as well. The church protects pedophiles, we read. Uh, this is truth, justice and love as this great protest comes out against this type of thing. It's there in Poland, stop pedophilia. Um, it's in Chile, uh, great, great groups of people there, renuncia, renouncing the Catholic Church because of the things that they have done. And as well, we find it in Canada, um, where we have the truth about the priests, this huge, um, massive, I would say, scandal, Mount Cashel in, uh, in Newfoundland. And there's actually a brother in uh, the Newfoundland Ecclesia who was an orphan in this orphanage. Um, and an, a terrible story of, of what these, these men did. It's in Germany, uh, 3,677 cases of abuse over 27 dioceses. And the, the reporter points out um, that, you know, it's, it's kind of really a bit of a small number because this is from the, the Vatican's own uh, information, what they've been allowed to get their hands on. Um, and it's in Chicago, uh, you know, baptized, confirmed, and then brutally raped in 1969 at the abuse of priests. Um, and it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Arizona, uh, Philadelphia, and so on. So this crime of basically um, pedophilia has really come out of the fact that these priests have been forced into celibate lives. And that's one of the hallmarks of this system. They would not regard uh, the desire of women. And so most of the, the abused um, victims are actually young boys. So it's a, a pretty disgusting thing, but that is the situation. And that is what the Spirit points out to us as an identification of this system. Now, just one other thing from that section in 1 Timothy 4, in the same place where he talks about in the latter days, the departure from the faith, um, where we have the forbidding to marry, we also have commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving. It's interesting um, that uh, did a little look into this. And in, in Canada and in America, um, what we find is Friday's meal of the day at McDonald's is uh, a fillet of fish. Um, so it's fish on Friday. And when we look this up, we read that the sandwich was created by, by a McDonald's franchise owner in Cincinnati, Ohio, named Lou Groen. 
1962, Groens owned a, uh, a McDonald's in a predominantly Roman Catholic neighborhood where his Catholic customers engaged in the practice of not eating meat uh, or beef, as it would be for most of the beef burgers, or that's at least what they tell you what's in them. Um, but rather, it would be fish on Fridays. And we used to smile. We would go to um, Shippensburg Bible School, and it was always fish on Fridays as the menu. Um, but this is one of the hallmarks, that part of the Catholic Church is the, the abstinence of eating meat on a Friday, but you are, in fact, allowed to eat fish. Um, but all of these things are, are kind of just... They are what Colossians determines to be will worship. And, he, and Paul tells us in Colossians 2 verse 18, he says, Look, don't let anybody beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshy mind. After the commandment, he goes on to say, verse 22, and the doctrines of men, which things have indeed, they, they've got a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, but not in any honor um, to the satisfying of the flesh. So basically, the idea is don't be beguiled or be defrauded um, by this voluntary, willful desire or purpose for humility. Um, so... The idea is of a purposeful humility. It's not genuine humility. Um, and it's all about worship, which is the idea of ceremonial or official parading of humility um, rather than actually grace. So these are activities that please the flesh because people can take pride in their humility. And we've got to be careful that we don't get into this kind of thing where we're we're proud about being belonging to this group or that group or because we do this or we do that um, because then it becomes prideful humility, will worship as we see here. Now Daniel 11, if we, we come down to um, verse 38, it says that in his estate he will honor the God of forces. A God who his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Now, it's interesting because when we look up Gesenius and Strong's, Gesenius, using the Strong's number 4581, identifies this idea of forces as mausim, um, a strong or fortified place, a defense or a fortress, used of some Syrian deity, uh, intruded on the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes. Perhaps it was Mars, he says. So, in this case, he points out that these were gods that were to be protectors or defenders of the people. And um, the same idea comes up in Strong's. Um, this word is used figurative, figuratively of human protection um, and is used in, in some contexts of the protection of Pharaoh. And of course, Brother Thomas, in um, Exposition of Daniel, points out that these are the God's protectors or protector gods. That's what they were worshipping. Now, this is, again, one of the hallmarks of the apostasy. Um, this is John Christosom, who writes around 349 to 407, um, a homily on the martyrs of Egypt. And he talks about um, what they would do, the practice of using relics. So relics are basically um, bodies of saints. So he says the bodies of these saints, so these are, these are people, holy people that they believed who died. He says the bodies, that their corpses, 
fortify the city more effectually for us than impregnable walls of adamant, like towering rocks placed around on every side. They repel not only the assault of the enemies that are visible, but the insidious stratagems also of invisible demons, and counteract and defeat every artifice of the devil as easily as a strong man overturns the toys of children. So he says, look, we use the bodies of the saints as these almost like good luck charms that are going to protect us. Now, of course, it's very ironic that they were used at the end of the Roman Empire. Um, when the, um, the Ostrogoths overthrew Rome, they went around parading their relics and praying to these relics, these saints, to protect them. Um, and it didn't work with the Ostrogoths. In fact, it didn't work with the Mohammedans either when in 1453, and when Byzantium would fall, or around there I think it was, um, we had Constantine, the last of the emperors of Byzantium or Constantinople, who ordered the icons and the relics to be carried around the city to protect it. And of course, they were not able to protect it either. Um, no surprise there. But this is the Council of Trent. Holy body. So this is 1545. So a little bit on from John Christosom. Um, holy bodies of holy martyrs and others now living with Christ. Which bodies were the living members of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And which are by him to be raised to eternal life and to be glorified. Are to be venerated by the faithful. For through these bodies many benefits are bestowed by God on men. So the corpses of people that they consider to be holy, right in the Council of Trent, we are told they are to be venerated. They are to be worshipped, um, which is a pretty gnarly kind of idea. Um, I'll give you an example of this. This is St. Francis Xavier, Jesuit priest, one of the first seven Jesuits, the successor to Ignatius Loyola after Loyola died, who preached throughout Asia, India, China, Japan, and Borneo. Well, Xavier died, and they buried him in the sand because of the season. Um, I think it was the heat. And uh, then they came back and they, they dug him up later on. And it was found that miraculously his corpse was preserved. Well, here is Xavier today. Died in 1552 of a fever. His incorruptible body now preserved in glass in Goa in India uh, where it was uh, put into a glass casket a silver casket in 1637 and um, as it was being carried um, along um, to this resting place a Catholic woman jumped out of the audience and took a bite off of the foot of this um, Francis Xavier because um, she wanted a relic of her own. So you can actually see that Xavier is missing most of the toes on his left. Um, actually, that would be his right foot. So um, this was the miracle. And you can see here this Roman Catholic with his rosary beads praying to this corpse um, of a quote-unquote saint. Well, it's pretty creepy. It kind of gets more gnarly than this because these are the images that we have of um, different reliquies. So a reliquy is a place where we keep a relic and you can see them there bejeweled 
uh, and covered up with silk. Uh, some of them were the faces uh, with gold and silver and precious stones, which if you if you remember what it says here, in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, verse 38, a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones. So, um, and pleasant things. So here are the bejeweled uh, bodies of saints um, that are all covered in these things. And, and Sister Charlene and I, we actually got to go to Pittsburgh um, this uh, last uh, fall and um, or autumn, and, and we went to a, a little church there to visit it. A sister we were with uh, took us there, Sister Sue Cooper, and she wanted us to see uh, something that she'd found there in Pittsburgh. And it was actually the um, the biggest collection of relics outside of the Vatican. So when the French Revolution was going on and a lot of the relics were being destroyed, there was a priest um, and into the 1800s, there was a priest who was saving a lot of these relics and bringing them to North America. And he put them in this church in Pittsburgh. So we've actually seen some of these types of relics where you've got these bejeweled skulls and heads and bits of arms and bodies and so on um, that have been preserved. But it's not just in the odd place. Um, every single Roman Catholic altar, in order to be consecrated, must actually contain the bones of an actual saint. So this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 1. In every altar, there is the altar cavity. This is a small, square, or oblong chamber in the body of the altar, in which are placed, according to the Pontifical Romanum, the relics of two canonized martyrs, especially of those in whose honor the church of the altar is consecrated. These relics must be actual portions of the saint's body, not simply their garments. The relics must, moreover, be authenticated, and there is an actual office in the Vatican where they authenticate relics. So every single Catholic altar has a cavity inside of it where they keep bones of the saints. Um, and this is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This isn't some you know, radical Christadelphian coming up with this stuff. This is the Catholic Church themselves telling you that their altars are more or less whited sepulchres full of dead men's bones. Um, and, and, and it's amazing that you might think, well, this is some kind of creepy medieval practice. Um, not so. Pope John Paul II made more saints, this idea of, of turning people into saints and then using their, the bits of their bodies for altars, than, than any other pope in history. He had a 473 saints that he, he made um, and has another 1,282 in the queue, and this was written in 2003. Uh, Queen Isabella of Spain is in the offing, and she is now a saint. Um, so this is Isabella who started the Spanish Inquisition. Um, so talk about repenting not of their deeds. And in fact, one of the other ones is Archbishop uh, Cardinal Stepanek, um, who basically you can see John Paul here kneeling at his altar um, or at his shrine in, in, the, um, in one of these churches in Croatia and has turned him into a saint. 
he was a war criminal who was tried as a war criminal. And basically, um, they figure around 700,000 to 900,000 Serbians were killed um, by Stepanek. And now he is to become a saint. Um, you just shake your head at this. Like, how is it possible that they would, would follow along with this? Well, of course, John Paul himself, um, this isn't his actual body. This is a, a wax effigy of him. Um, but you can see here that he's, he's also been canonized, the fastest canonization, by the way, in church history. And you can see this woman here who is venerating him um, as she kisses the glass where he's, you know, not really there. But um, in that cross, there is a piece of him um, that they are venerating as a relic. And the rest is just simply a wax sculpture. And he's wearing some of John Paul's clothes. Um, and here is uh, Pope Benedict in uh, September 2013 who's kissing a glass reliquy, which contains uh, the blood of the late Pope John Paul II. And, and you just look at this and you think, good grief, like, what on earth drives them to this? Well, this is what Daniel 11 says they would do. They would worship protector gods, the bodies of dead saints who have gone up to heaven, they believe, to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, bodies that are powerful because they once had the Holy Spirit in them, and so now their corpses are able to provide um, some kind of magical help to those who pray to them. And these reliquies are all over the place. Um, here is the reliquy of Saint Nicholas, um, as we know a little bit better as Santa Claus, the patron saint of children, and this is his reliquy. Um, why was he, um, you know, made a saint? Um, well, apparently what happened was there was three uh, school children who were murdered and dismembered and put into pickling barrels. And Nicholas came along and put Humpty Dumpty back together again, reconstructed them and brought them back to life. And that's why he's the patron saint of children, um, if you can believe that. Um, so here you have, you know, skulls, hands, feet. They're all put into, you know, bits and pieces into these uh, little reliquies. Um, and, and then the church, so the church of St. Nicholas um, has to have bones of St. Nicholas in it or in its altar. And here you can see the reliquy of St. Nicholas that contains um, parts of his body um, or, or so we are told. Now, just a little aside, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, he also talks about this, um, that through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. So this is talking about that latter-day system um, that lines up with Daniel chapter 11. And the word there, craft, is deceit. And it means basically um, guile or to lie, of course, which reminds us of the serpent system. So when you look at the Catholic Church, and this is the, the, um, the Eucharist, the, the cookie, that basically they break up. Um, and this is what they believe actually takes place. So we read here, oh, how very great is their power. That's the priests. A word falls from their lips. 
and the body of Christ is there substantially formed from the matter of bread and the incarnate word descends from heaven, is found really present on the table of the altar. Never did divine goodness give such power to the angels. The angels abide by the order of God, but the priests take him in their hands, distribute him to the faithful, and partake of him as food for themselves. Um, and so it is that in obedience to the words of the priests and that the Latin phrase hoc es corpus meum, that God is supposed to descend himself on the altar and comes wherever they call him and as often as they call him and places himself in their hands. Um, and basically uh, this is what the, the, the priests do. Uh, they believe that God becomes the bread that's in their hand physically or the Lord Jesus Christ because they believe they are one and the same. And when they say hocus corpus meum, which from which we get a, a more a Protestant phrase, hocus pocus, right? Hocus is hocus pocus corpus. Uh, hocus pocus corpus Christi is kind of the phrase that this now physically turns into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's interesting, um, in a little book called 50 Years in the Church of Rome, there's a Canadian Catholic priest who um, was alive around the time of um, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, one of the parishioners of his day, um, when the priest came around and her husband was a Catholic and she was a Protestant and they wanted her to become Catholic. And, and she says, well, I just don't get it. You're, you're telling me that literally when you, you know, give this incantation over this, this loaf, that it literally turns into the body of Christ. And the priest says, absolutely, that's what happened. So she says, and it can be any bread that you do this to. Yes, it can be any bread. It's the power of the priest's words to, to change this. So she says, all right, so if I bake the bread, you'll come and you'll physically turn it into the body of Christ. And yes, yes, I can do that. She says, fine, like, come over tomorrow. I'll bake some bread and we'll do this. So she made bread and the priest comes around and she basically says to him, well, listen, just before you eat the bread, um, there's just something I want to tell you. And that is that the bread has been laced with arsenic. Um, but since you're turning it into the body of Christ, literally, that's not going to matter. You'll be able to eat it and it won't have any effect on you. And of course, the priest wouldn't eat the bread. And so the woman says, well, you obviously don't believe it's literally the body of Christ. So neither do I. And I'm not becoming a Roman Catholic. Um, but that's where this whole process comes along. But this is those words of Daniel. And it's also picked up in the book of Revelation. By thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And this is what happens in Rome. Um, and of course, there's all the, the, the miracles. This is from um, one of the churches of, of St. Mary in, in, um, in Quebec, in uh, Canada. And these are all the crutches of all the people that have been healed theoretically. And of course, you could go over to Europe and to Lourdes. And here is the cathedral in Lourdes. And this is, of course, the Pope who is here, um, you know, worshipping at the cathedral in Lourdes. So, you know, that's, that's some of those passages. Another one is Daniel chapter 11 and verse 39, um, where he says, 
Thus shall he do in the most strongholds, and with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. He shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. Well, this again goes back to the change that would take place, because the emperors, the kings that we've been reading about in Daniel 11, king of the north, king of the south, um, they're going to now be honoring a different god than they've honored before. And of course, you know, the Greeks were pagans and they worshipped the pantheon of gods. Um, so were the Romans. But at some point in time, this is going to change. And, and this, of course, happens during the time of, uh, of the emperors, Constantine, first of all. But this is the decree of Justinian in March 533, um, where basically he says that he would render honor to the apostolic throne of your holiness. We have always a great desire to preserve the unity of your apostolic throne. He goes on to say, therefore, we have hastened both to subject and to unite the throne of your holiness, all the priests of the eastern region. Uh, your holiness, who is head of all the churches, um, for through all, as it is said, we hasten to increase and honor the authority of your throne. So this is that great blasphemy that would be spoken um, when the Roman Empire now, which would now be the Christian Roman Empire and eventually the Holy Roman Empire, would be brought under the power of the papacy. They would honor this strange God that the others had not. And so it was that the decree of focus in 602, um, this uh, Boniface III, that the Pope, obtained from focus the prince, that apostolic throne of the blessed apostle Peter that should be called the head of all churches, which happened in 606, um, because the Cos Constantinopolitan church declared that she herself was first of all churches. So um, this has been changed uh, basically is, is what focus decrees and that the the Pope in Rome would be the first. Um, he would be the head of all churches. And so this these basically would breathe life into this little horn and would basically give it eyes and a mouth speaking great things and it would go on to persecute. Well, that's in Daniel, um, and if you, the passage is actually Daniel chapter 11, of course, where we, or Daniel chapter 7, where we have the little horn um, that would come up, which is the Roman Empire, but eventually it would have eyes and a mouth speaking great things, and three other horns would be plucked up in, in its place, and it would stand, and it would blaspheme, and it would last all the way to um, the Lord Jesus Christ would come. Well, this runs parallel with the book of Revelation. So Daniel chapter 7 and uh, Daniel chapter 11, this, this area in 33, parallels um, the time period in Revelation when we have this little horn um, is described in Revelation 13 as the beast of the earth that comes up and has two horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. And this is really the time period of Charlemagne and of Pepin, when the Holy Roman Empire was proclaimed, and three of the provinces of Italy uh, were plucked up, and the Roman Catholic Church would become ruler over them. So this was the Holy Roman Empire. And there would be two sides to this, both the Pope and the Rome, and the Pope would uh, and the emperor, the Pope would crown Constantine on Christmas Day, uh, 799, so just about 800. And then for a thousand years, you would have this Holy 
Roman Empire. Um, on one side, you've got Charlemagne, which would be the emperor. And then on the other side, you would have the papacy. So that it has two horns. One of those horns is the Pope. That's the holy side. And then the other side of it, of course, is the, the Roman Emperor. So it reminds us in a lot of ways of, of Daniel um, when we had the, the, uh, the Medo-Persian ram and it had two horns. One was the Medes and one was the Persians or the Grecian goat. The notable horn was Alexander the Great. And this would be placed by four horns that would come up and would be the four generals who would basically divide up the, the, the Grecian Empire into four kingdoms. And so this is the same idea. We have these two horns, the emperor and the pope. And so in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 14, this system, just like that what we read in Daniel 8 and in, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 11, would deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying that they that should dwell on the earth should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. So he talks about, you know, the, the wound by the sword and did live, and this is, again, it's another subject. We, we dealt with this in our Thursday night class the other day, but just as a quick um, sort of um, recap for anybody who's missed it, the, the wound by the sword is the sixth imperial head of the Christian Roman Empire, which would then basically be resurrected in this holy Roman Empire, and they would make an image to the beast. And that image to the beast is, of course, the Vatican um, and the, the Holy Roman Empire. This is the side of it, basically, that would be the Roman or the, the Roman Catholic Church side of it, the Vatican side of it. And, and we were told, basically, by McGraw-Hill Illustrated World History that it was truly a Roman structure. The hierarchy of Pope, Archdiocese, Diocese, and Parish was organized in the tradition of the Diocletian imperial reorganization. So Diocletian had put in place a structure where there was an emperor, a prefect, a vicar, and a governor. And what the papacy did was reestablish itself in the same way where you had a pope, an archbishop, a bishop, and a pastor. So you would have that same idea of an archdiocese, a diocese, and a parish. And so basically anybody who would not worship this system um, would be killed. Um, and that's, of course, the picture that we have in the Bible um, of the persecution of all of those, uh, many of which we would call our brethren, who would be caught underneath this whole system as well. So when we, when we look at this and we come back to Daniel chapter 11... And we say, you know, what have we found here? Well, we, we've only dealt with some of them, with some of the areas we've not actually got into yet. But we have a king who does according to his will, who's going to exalt himself and magnify himself against every god. And we've seen that in the testimony of the popes themselves, that they believe that the pope is God on earth, or is Jesus Christ under the veil of the flesh, and that when they speak, God speaks. So they speak marvelous things or blasphemous things against the God of gods. Um, and they've turned around and said the Bible itself cannot be interpreted without um, the papacy itself being involved in that. Um, and it's going to prosper for a period of time until the indignation be accomplished, which, of course, will happen 
when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Um, and he goes on to say in verse 37, um, he would not desire or not regard the, the God of his fathers. Paganism would be thrown out. We didn't really spend a lot of time on that, but we could look at Constantine where he removed the whole pagan Roman system um, and put something else in its place. Nor would he regard the desire of women, and we looked at celibacy and its evil act, um, nor regard any God, but he would magnify, magnify himself above all. And um, verse 38, and we, we've seen that in verse 37, both of those areas. But in verse 38, he would in his estate honor the God of forces or the protector gods, a God who his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stone and pleasant things. So this is that worship of protector gods, the saints whose corpses basically are bejeweled and they are worshipped and they are venerated um, in rather a revolting and disgusting way. Um, but basically you have dead men's bones um, that fill these altars. And this he shall do in the most strongholds with a strange God who he will acknowledge and increase with glory and shall cause them to rule over many. And this is really where we've had the, the emperor um, going back to the time of Phocas and Justinian and then Charlemagne who would basically empower the papacy and come the time of Charlemagne they would establish the temporal power of the Pope and he would rule over many. He would have that temporal power. They would increase his glory and of course he would divide the land for gain which I think probably has uh, a little bit of a, uh, a forward look as well to the time when they come um, to the, the land in the latter day, which is those last few verses in Daniel chapter 11, um, when he's going to come into the land. So if we were to step back and say, you know, we've looked at the accused, the Catholic Church. Um, this is the accusation that the Catholic Church fits the bill of the king who does according to his will. Uh, and I think it's fair to say um, that as we've considered this, um, as they would sort of ask the jury, what say ye, that we could say that certainly it is guilty as charged. Um, and when we consider like the scriptures that we've been through this evening um, and, and all of the, the different things, and again, we haven't looked at all of them and you could dive into Revelation as other areas in Daniel there's Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 2, all of which indict this system. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that that little section that we just read about, the king who does it according to his will, is talking about the papal system um, that basically has been established and has been fortified by the emperors and basically um, is coming to its end um, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The evidence to me is somewhat overwhelming um, and it's not some, you know, crackpot conspiracy theory stuff. This is coming right from the Vatican, from the voice of the papacy itself in indicting itself in the things that have been said. So um, I'll, I'll end off there and we can open up the class for discussion if you would like or any questions or comments. Um, and again, there's lots more we could get into, but I think that this kind of pretty well covers, covers it at a basic level. Mm -hmm.